This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. The summer holidays have officially begun and I'm excited today because we are talking to one of my favourite food writers, Claire Thompson. I follow Claire online for a very long time now and I've read all her books and she truly makes the most delicious recipes. She's also got an enormous following online now from her brilliant reels, which she does. And I was so happy when I saw that her online community grew because I think sometimes the best food writers aren't necessarily the ones with the biggest followings on social media. And, you know, Instagram reels and filming recipes is not for everyone. And social media food can be a strange thing in itself, but all of that to say Claire is absolutely killing it in the world of cookbooks and also online which is very cool to see. She's also got an amazing work ethic. I think she brings out a new book basically every year which is very impressive. Her last one Tomato came out last summer and she's currently shooting her new one at the moment which is very exciting. I love talking to Claire and I really hope you enjoy today's episode brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. My guest today is Claire Thompson. Claire is a chef, food writer, and the author of eight cookery books. Her writing is focused around the idea of creating proper food for modern families, and she aims for her food to inspire, but it's also down-to-earth enough not to be intimidating. She was born and raised in Zimbabwe and Botswana, and over many generations, her family have had a deep connection with Africa. She returned to London at the age of eight before heading to deepest, darkest Shropshire, age 10, for her teenage years. She says she got the cooking bug on a trip to Sydney in her early 20s and then spent her 20s working in restaurants, even setting up her own, the Flinty Red, in Bristol with her husband, who is also a chef. She's the mother of three young girls and is known online as the Five O'Clock Apron, a name that came about 
from her tweeting each day at 5pm describing what she was cooking for her family that day. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me. Claire, after so many full starts, I am genuinely <laughs> so happy to have you on Desert Island Dishes at last. I wondered, the name Five O'Clock Apron, have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. She's great, isn't she? I wonder whether she's a follower of yours because that's very Elizabeth Sott, isn't it? Yes. The five o'clock apron. Yes, and um, that's exactly what I wanted it to be because I'm a chef and, you know, before I had children, I was always in an apron at sort of 7.30. If you're a chef, you sort of commonly start at sort of 8am, work till 4 if you're on a split, then you sort of have four till 5.30 for a bit of a break and then you're back in the kitchen for evening service. But my children came along and I found myself always putting an apron on at five o'clock. So um, that's how the name stuck. Truth be told, it hasn't really altered as they've got older. They're still at about five o'clock, six o'clock, start making food for them because children are always hungry. <laughs> yes, it's just a never-ending cycle, isn't it? <laughs> just yes. constantly preparing food. And Claire, what an amazing childhood you had with three very distinctive parts. I wondered when you think back now over your childhood, which one of those three really dominates in your memory? Yeah, it's definitely truncated into two parts. My early childhood as as a young girl was in Botswana and then London in the 80s, sort of late 80s in in London and then Shropshire for my teenage years. The wrong way round. I should have been in London in my (laughs) teenage years. But um, no, I was in the middle of nowhere for my teenage years. So um, yeah, very different. Very, very different. I feel like your parents planned that quite well. (laughs) My dad is a bit of a nomad. He's just always travelled. And uh, my mum, yeah, my mum and dad met in Sydney so we, we've always just had quite a sort of global upbringing. My family are spread out everywhere. And your husband is from New Zealand. Yes. And you now live in Bristol. So how did you decide that that's where you were going to settle and raise your three girls? Well, Matt is, yes, from New Zealand. And we met in London cooking at the Chelsea Arts Club. Uh, then we went travelling with with two big travels, really, for a year. We worked in China for a year together, um, which was a, just a brilliant experience travelled overland from Beijing to Bangkok and stopped in Mm. Chengdu and worked for about three months in the middle there. Um, And then we sort of moved back to Britain after our travels and found ourselves in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall. We were the chefs at the Gurner's Head before Grace was born. Yeah. And then I just thought, gosh, I think I need to be somewhere with a bit more people for raising children. (laughs) So Bristol was where I first learnt to cook. Um, As a chef, when I was 20, I first got a job here in a restaurant. So... um, I sort of thought Bristol's pretty, it's good like London, it's got a good cosmopolitan vibe, but it's not as big and it's nearer the sea. So it had everything Mm. sort of ticking boxes for raising our family here. Yeah, also really nice to feel that it's sort of come full circle in that that's where you first started out. It's really nice to have old chef friends here. And um, yeah, it's good. Let's dive straight into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Wow. So, you know, my early memories are just sitting on the doorstep uh, in my house with my brother in Botswana, sort of gnawing on biltong. That's what we used to eat (laughs) a lot, really. And I loved that taste. And still, when I get it now, it transports me back to being a young kid, this hot sun gnawing on biltong. And that is a really vivid memory for me as my childhood. Um, yeah, that really. Jam sandwiches, boiled eggs and biltong, I think. 
I mean, yeah, because when I read that, I think that's amazing because Biltong is so it's a very <laughs> yeah, it's a very strong sort of I don't know, it's hard to describe it, isn't it, if someone hasn't tasted it. It's intensely meaty and mm. have you tried giving it to your children when they were very young? I'm not talking about weaning babies on Biltong. I'm sort no. of talking about <laughs> five or six year olds. I've got three daughters, two of them are vegetarian, one of them is like Bam Bam from the Flintstones. She loves meat. So Ivy is my Biltong eater. And she gets it. <laughs> do you think that those very early food memories have meant that you do have a slightly different palate if you hadn't have had the upbringing that you had? Wow, I think, you know, my stepmom is from China. My mum has lived all over the world. We were, you know, raised for our early years in, in Botswana and Zimbabwe. So I feel like I've just had this big hodgepodge of food and culture and we've always cooked as a family. So I feel like my attitude to food is very open and and nothing is no go and as a chef that even got more entrenched because you know as a chef you can never ever stop learning about food and culture and recipes and cuisines and you know it's almost like that kind of like where in the world would you like to cook and, and let's cook that so I feel very lucky from my upbringing that I've been able to cook and, and eat a very varied diet. <laughs> You've said that food is a portal into exploration and that's how you talk about it with your children. Mm -hmm. You say that you can navigate the whole world through your spice rack, which I think is such a brilliant way of thinking about food. Tell us a little bit more about what you love of that idea as a notion. Well, you know, when we couldn't travel back in the pandemic, <laughs> we cooked an awful lot, the kids and I, because um, I had two who were still in primary school during that time. So Whilst we did a bit of maths and English, we sort of concentrated on roller skating and cooking and we got <laughs> good at both, both of them. So um, I think we'd often look at, you know, what we wanted to cook. We've got lots of books about food at home and, and we've got a big world map and, you know, maps from New Zealand. So we've always wanted to talk about the sort of geography of the planet. And so we'd always sort of look at, at, at what we wanted to cook, where we might want to travel and talk about these things and cook dishes from that. You know, I'm really lucky I've judged... The Guild of Food Writers first book award quite a few times and like I've got a wall of cookery books so I can cook anything anywhere because I've got these amazing cookery books from friends and other food writers and that's the, the wonderful thing about food. Mm. I think you're so right that particular time was when people really relied on food to transport them somewhere else mm. which I feel like has always been you know, this amazing gift of food, that was a time that I think more and more people realise how powerful that actually is. Mm, yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary time, but, you know, we're really lucky that we just cooked our way through it. I mean, there were a few of my um, videos that I put out to the world with me looking completely exasperated, <laughs> like, oh, my God, homeschool's not going well. But, um, yeah. The fact that you came out of it with the children doing lots of cooking and also the roller skating, I think, is very impressive. To equally important life skills. <laughs> yes. I read something that you wrote where you said that to eat a wide range of food, it really encourages you to open your mind and also be broad-minded in your thought process, which, again... You, you do have an amazing way with words because that isn't necessarily a way that I've ever really thought about food, but you're absolutely right. To think about food like this, it sort of, it goes beyond food, beyond eating and actually can shape who you are in a wider context. Yeah, so, um, you know, I have a lot of conversations with parents about feeding children and lots of them, rightly so, feel at the end of their tether. But, you know, I'm really lucky that my, I'm a chef, my husband's a chef, we are all about food in this household. So if I was a doctor and Matt was, 
a dentist, they'd know lots of other things. But fortunately for them, they know a lot about food. And that has been my kind of raison d'etre since writing about food is to is to just there's no barriers. Nothing is bad. Nothing is good. I don't want to be too didactic in what I feed my children. I want them to have likes and dislikes. I just don't want them to be fussy. But, like, mm. you know, Dot hates mushrooms. She hates tomatoes. I can't believe that, Claire. <laughs> I know. But uh, so I dedicated the book to Dot because I think one one day I'll get her. And two of them are vegetarian and, and Ivy is, like, she just loves bone marrow. Do you know what I mean? It's very different. Children are all very different. And as they grow up, children do grow up, that it gets easier. So just stick with it is what I my advice to anyone. I've got a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. The 15-year-old will eat anything other than meat. The 10-year-old will eat most things, but she's going to get there in the end. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good attitude to have. And eating the food of another country or another person, like you said um, in something that I read that you wrote, um, you say that it allows you to understand them and know them in a really unique way. So the traditional saying is to say that to know someone, you've got to travel in their shoes, but really you should have to eat the food that they eat. It's so intimate cooking mm. and recipes and that transferal of knowledge through food and cooking is really, it's a really open and intimate relationship. Even the best chefs in the world will go and meet someone and they will be able to teach them something that they didn't know. Food writers are like portals to to that knowledge, really. And I'm really um, aware of the fact that that should be acknowledged. And, you know, I'm really lucky to have learnt so much Chinese cooking with my stepmom, who is a phenomenal cook. And, uh, you know, she's really generous in her knowledge with with the way she cooks and how she feeds my children. And being a mum at school, you know, my kids go to a state primary school. There's a a lot of different mums and dads out there who cook. And, you know, the school fair is always a really good opportunity to sample everyone's wares and stuff. And that's what's really nice. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's the premise almost of Desert Island Dishes. And why I find it so interesting is that by finding out the dishes that people love and that they've eaten at pivotal moments in their life, we're getting to know them in a really intimate way. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Oh, my gosh. My first memories of learning... My mum and dad separated and my mum was a single mum and my brother was elsewhere and it was me and my mum. And so I had to cook dinner twice a week and <gasps> she she was working full time. So... um I just remember endlessly making white sauces to get, like, various pasta dishes nailed, but never really mastering the lumpiness, you know, and there would just be pots and pans and sieves all over the kitchen. And my mum would come back and be like, I'd be, like, still passing it through a sieve, you know, and she'd just be like, why haven't we nailed it yet? You've just just got to beat the hot milk into the room and it's fine. Why can't you do it? So a lot of white sauces were practised, I think. But pasta dishes and lasagna, my first lasagna for Sunday lunch, you know, that was like a, a moment, a triumph. Mm. <laughs> that moment of making the first lasagna and it feels like it takes an eternity. It's like mm. a three-day job the yeah. first time you do it, isn't it? When you make a really good one, it's such a good feeling. Yes. I think I made quite a few um, bad risottos as well with like dodgy like things that shouldn't be in risottos. I think I, I was uh, guilty of that in my 
late teens. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an important rite of passage, I think, Claire. <laughs> so despite being very into cooking as a teenager, from what I've read, it wasn't necessarily about cooking the food to eat because you were also very interested in sport and you describe how a competitive instinct took over and it was about being the best as a teenager, being the skinniest was a part of that. And I think teenage years can be so complicated for so many people when it comes to food. And yet you say about that, that you managed to change your relationship with food and that ultimately completely changed your relationship with life. Can you tell us a little bit about what you meant by that? Yes, I'm a feeder. And I think people who have had uh, disordered eating, I suppose, um, might that might resonate with some people. Um, yeah, as a teenager, I was, I was, I definitely did have eating issues, and uh, and that was channeled through sport. And I am quite competitive anyway, so um, I started cooking really, and that was a difficult time, I think. But when I went to university, I, I found myself in a student home with, with I'm still friends with all my friends I lived with in my student house, and no one could cook, so it was me who who took the cooking duties on, and. Uh, I got out of all sorts of things that I didn't want to have to deal with in that student house because I could cook. So it started there, really. Rather than feeding and cooking being a bit troubled, it was about joyfulness, I suppose, and people getting together. And we were definitely the house that everyone came to to eat. And that became something that really resonated with me and it sort of put me on my way. I, I did journalism and film and broadcasting at university. Although you wouldn't think so with the uh, tech problems today. Uh, <laughs> but I always wanted to write about food. And so when it, I got to university and I was doing my degree and then I was the feeder of this student house, that's when I started working in restaurants to earn extra money at university. And then when I left university, that's when I went to Sydney and cooked. But that's the great thing about food is it's such a vast topic and it's really inspiring and yeah, I'm a feeder, but that's why. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You were able to switch everything around and put all your energy into being the best you, you could at food and it became this really positive force mm. in your life. And I have three daughters, you know, so I'm really aware of that coming up and I feel touch wood. I think I'm we're good at the moment. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> 20 years ago, when you were working in a restaurant, you say that you were the only girl, there were seven men and you, and you say that it was really important to you to keep up with the men in the kitchen. Did you feel like you had something to prove? Yes, I did. There was one girl, she was the baker, and she's called okay. Laura Hart. She has a bakery here in Bristol, Hart's Bakery. Laura would work at five, she did like five till eight in the morning, and then I'd arrive at sort of 7.30. And this sort of squad of men yeah and uh, I loved it I loved the energy and I loved proving myself really that I could I could do as much as I could carry as many you know sacks of potatoes or carry the bins out or mop the floor it was such an exciting part of my life and when you start as a chef in a in a professional kitchen you have got a lot to prove because if you're not good enough then you won't get the shifts so um yeah I was good enough <laughs> More than good enough, Claire. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh, so after university, I went to Sicily. Uh, well, we went to Naples and we got the night boat from Naples to Sicily and spent the summer basically in Sicily, which was incredible. But before we got the night boat from Naples, we went to a restaurant and I had linguine mm. vongole. And yeah, that is the perfect essence of what it is to be a good cook because it's so a few ingredients cooked with precision and cooked and seasoning on point and 
it's just complete in every way, isn't it? So that mm. is my best dish ever. And that's the perfect setting to have a dish like that. Yeah. And it, it was a wild summer. I crashed a motorbike. Uh, we slept in a tent that didn't have any tent poles. It was it was oh. mad. But uh, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Like a pancake? Yeah, pretty much like a giant <laughs> bin bag. <laughs> but it was so much fun. And I, and I have such fond memories of that time. <laughs> Claire, I feel very sweaty even just thinking about how clammy that must have been. Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> and I landed back in London and had... Um, we didn't have any health insurance and I'd crashed this waiter's motorbike and I basically had um, my arms and my knees uh, with toilet roll wound around them until I could get <laughs> top. Oh, Claire. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, glamorous. <laughs> but you had the best vongolet of your life, so... Yes. It was worth it. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about what you describe as your competitive personality because you say you did set out on a mission to win food. And in many ways, you have won food. You're incredibly successful and amazing at what you do, but you did choose an area which is constantly evolving and there's always so much more to learn and different cultures who do things differently. Is your competitive personality okay with that? Um, Well, you know, in a career in food, it's going to change as you get older and, and it has changed. You know, in my 20s, I worked in restaurants and I was that person that was like, Gosh, you know, now restaurants are so different. You can't work 15 doubles in a row. But, you know, it felt like you could back then 80, 90 hour weeks, you know, exhaustion. Uh, But I didn't mind it because I was in my 20s and um, early 30s even. But um, then children came along and your priorities changed, didn't they? So I always said I'd write about food. I I, I, um, met my old head chef a couple of weeks ago um, when we cooked together, you know, 23 years ago. I always said to him I was going to have three children and I was going to write cookery books. And so he was like, you've done it. So I, I feel like it's manifested because my life has changed and children have come along and I've met Matt and we're still all about food, but it's now I write about it and I feel like I've got this duty to to imbue my kids with this sense of a positive attitude towards food and eating. And, and mm. um, I feel like I know food's bad food in this house and it's all encompassing. I'm sure my daughters would sometimes like to not talk about lentils or uh, fava beans sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, needs must. That's interesting what you say about restaurants changing, because I've heard other people say that in terms of the amount of shifts that you can do. Working that hard and, and doing those intense hours is obviously difficult and stressful, but it's also perhaps a necessary step in order to get the knowledge and get the experience and all of the things that you gain from working in that environment. Do you think there's a danger that this younger generation is perhaps going to miss out on certain things? Well, yeah, you have two sides to it, don't you? The the people who are are absolutely exhausted and having a difficult time and, and not loving that life. And we're talking about the whole gambit of cookery and chefs and working in hospitality. There are very many different operations you can work in, and I'm sure some of them are pretty relentless and grim, whilst some are really wonderful and take care of you. Um, but I think that sort of, like I said, that machismo and that sort of like desire and that sort of hunger to learn food and cooking and give me throw everything you can at me and I want to know that knowledge... It depends, I suppose, who you get as the people, as your cohort who cook with you. Um, yeah. And so I was lucky to have a really great first restaurant that really 
Barney Horton, he he set up Square Food Foundation and mm. he, he was sort of pivotal in the first organic movement back in the sort of 90s. All the chefs that came into that kitchen, he gave us a, a stack of books and he said, these are the people who need to read. And this, is, this is food and this is what we're going to cook. And he also made us learn... The owl and the pussycat went to see a beautiful pea green bear and we had to recite it in the car park once a week off the top of our heads so that we were receptive to learning things still. Oh, wow. <laughs> Even though we were all like 25, 23. Wow. Yeah, and he sort of was quite a key person in the organic food movement. So I was really lucky to start there, but then, you know, I worked in much less cosy environments in London which weren't so nice and I have had saucepans thrown at my head by horrible head chefs with no front teeth and that wasn't so great yeah then like I said you know the priorities change when you become older and you and you've got other things that are more important than it changes Mm. doesn't it and that's the natural order yeah, it's constantly evolving. And like you say, it, that first experience is so important. If you get the wrong team or the wrong environment for you personally, it's going to put you off the whole thing, which is a shame because sometimes, you know, if you'd been in a slightly different environment, it could have been better. But you've described working in a restaurant kitchen as, as going into battle, which is such a good analogy. And that's exactly how it feels, which I think will sound strange for anyone who hasn't worked in a kitchen because that's going to sound like an exaggeration. <laughs> but honestly, in that moment, it feels like the most important thing, your mind can't be anywhere else. You have to be ready and it's go time. And you either love that or Sink you or don't. Swim. But it's that, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you absolutely thrived in that environment. Do you know what? And that's the brilliant thing about working in a professional kitchen. Um, there is that like battle mentality where you have to have your mise en place ready. You know they're all coming. You're working as a team. You, you've got the onslaught and it can go horribly wrong and you can go down, as they say. And that is horrific, those moments in restaurant kitchens when people just go down. But there's also moments when it's like a ballet. I remember working in London on a shift on the grill in a restaurant with my best friend, who's also a, a chef, she's a girl, and um, we were working, it was so busy, and my husband was on the pass, he was the head chef of this restaurant, and he was calling, the. it was so many checks coming in that we just started not using the ticket machine because it just was, like, spewing out these tickets, so we gave up with that, and Matt was just at the pass saying four mackerels, three steaks, three pastas, and I remember just being so hot and working the grill, and my hands were in on the top of the stove with mackerel pans, they were going in the oven to get bits of pork chops out, whatever. And other than being the list, the music of service, there's nothing else I needed to think about. So even mm. though I was cooking like a crazy person, like so many dishes, nothing else mattered other than what was going into my ear and what was coming out of my hands to cook. And that's almost beautiful, really, isn't it? When it's like that, when you don't have to think anymore because you just have to just do what you're good at and that's cooking you're so right at that point it's not even stressful anymore because you're just in it and you're doing it and it has to be done and it's just you're just on autopilot in a way and the kitchen space is often so small that you're right it is like a dance and a ballet because you're sort of twirling around the other chefs and not getting in each other's way and near misses but never quite actually bumping into each other and it's yeah you're right it's really nice and just talking about it now it makes me it's such a fun memories of that time you know that it was incredible and hot summers in London like just baking hot but just being fine because you're in this team and you've got you know it was an extraordinary time we used to work in this restaurant near Primrose Hill and we'd just all bail out after service with cold beers and just lie there in the grass you know feeling like we'd been in a battle Mm. (laughs) 
I think it says a lot about me and and my feelings towards that time is that um yeah my favorite was the feeling at the end of service <laughs> like there is nothing quite like that feeling when you've survived and you're through it mm. and you're out and breathing the fresh air again on the street um you're almost making me feel nostalgic about that time Claire, which I didn't think was going to be possible let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish what is your favorite sandwich oh my word you know that is such a hard question isn't it so my favorite sandwich would be like some delicious thing with like cheese definitely but I couldn't pin it down to one sandwich but it would definitely involve like olives cheese sort of jarred peppers basil olive oil not not a buttery sandwich I would say a sort Mm. of more Mediterranean vibe sandwich some basil some rockets and those lovely sort of fat luscious jarred peppers some cheese in a ciabatta really like something you know something robust I'm I'm not a white sliced bread kind of girl Mm, like an anti-pasty style sandwich that sounds gorgeous especially this time of year camping Mm. you know things that you can make in the morning and take with you camping and they're going to get better as they sort of soak in all those lovely juices Mm, a camping sandwich yeah you don't want to be taking an egg mayonnaise in a Tupperware box on a camping trip (laughs) (laughs) that's that's for sure no although Dot my little one is the biggest egg mayonnaise fan in the world that's what she loves (laughs) I also really love egg mayonnaise. (laughs) Food plays such a pivotal role in in who we are. And I think cooking can tell us so much about who we are, but also possibly who we want to be as well. I've heard you talk about it being the chance for learning and also challenging yourself. And of course, it's a way of, of showing love to yourself, but also to others. And it's definitely a way to grow in confidence, not only in your cooking skills, but in a broader sense as well. Do you think cooking has taught you more about yourself than anything else in life has? Wow, that's such a good question. Um, Yeah, definitely think so. Because as we said, it's everything cooking, isn't it? It's knowledge that you've taken on. It's love that you want to pass on. It's the basic requirement of living, of feeding. We all need to eat. Some people find it so difficult food because it's so innate with us within Mm. us all and if we can just find a way that doesn't make it challenging or bossy or didactic or or just necessary because we all need to eat and that's what I say to my children and I have done forever like even when they were little like oh I don't like that I just like you know tomorrow's another day we'll make something else but it's just food and that's what's been made and we're really lucky to have the food on the table in the cupboards that we do and you know, we can all say we don't like things. I don't really like Jerusalem artichokes, but if I was fed them, I would just eat them and then I'd move mm. on. And the next day, I hopefully, I wouldn't be fed Jerusalem artichokes again. That's a really good way to approach it. So I just try to not be too bossy and, you know, sure, they can absolutely not like things because I don't like things, but, like, we just have to eat. And that's, if we just make it very functional then we can hopefully move on to the beauty and the excitement of food. Because obviously you were very sporty as a teenager Mm. and you've channeled all of the energy that you put into sport is now into cooking. Do you think if you hadn't have found cooking, would you have found something else that you could put those competitive 
energies into? What do you think you would have found? <laughs> I still play sport. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, great. Oh, well, that's great. I play netball. Um, oh, oh, my goodness. What position are you? I'm wing attack, of course. <laughs> of course. I had you down as a wing attack. <laughs> uh, yeah, I played netball last night for that. Oh, my God, it was so hot. Um, uh, would I found another career? No, I've always wanted to write. And I've written nine books now. Uh, and I'd really like my 10th book to not be a cookbook. <gasps> um, yes. So um, I've always wanted to write. I've always, I've got all my notepads from a child and a teenager. And, you know, it's lovely looking at them now because they're so pretentious for my teenage years. Uh, and all through my early chefing years, I kept a diary of what I was cooking. So I hope that I would find a way into writing. Is the 10th book not going to be a cookbook, but will it still be about food? Yes. Or possibly fiction about food. That's that's what I'd like to do. Oh, Claire, that's so exciting. Yeah, I, I, I'd really like that for my 10th book, a decade in and on from cookbooks. Claire, <laughs> you have to make this happen. <laughs> I know you feel really strongly about the idea of food and love, the notion of nurturing someone else. And I heard you talk about the chicken pie that you made for your daughter after her first day at big school. And Claire, that actually made me want to cry because a chicken pie is the exact dish that my mum made for me when <gasps> I went to big school. And it continues to, you know, be made for me at every pivotal moment in my life. Like the night before I got married, we had the chicken pie. Um, so tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on the notion of food and love, because you're obviously, you're far more eloquent than I could ever be. You can take time over cooking, can't you? And you can also have cooking when you throw it together in minutes. And the time taken over dishes and cooking for particular people in mind is the very essence of, of sharing love, isn't it? So in my book, Home Cookery Year, um, I have a chapter on those sort of panic in a kitchen, throw it together dinners. And then the time on your side, you, you've got no pressure, you've got the radio on, you've got a glass of wine, and then you're cooking for someone with, a, with something in mind. And that chicken pie, although Grace doesn't eat chicken anymore, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> she, you know, it's just really nice to, like, make something. And I i don't know if it's a placebo or if it's psychosomatic or whatever, but making something with someone in mind, you know, and paying care and attention to what they might think when they come to eat that is a, is a really nice thing. And that's what's, you know, food you can do that endlessly with, can't you? Mm. Even if it's making a smoothie in the morning. I've been doing a lot of um, feeding Grace at the moment because she's doing her GCSEs. So she's been at home at these funny times, not in school. And I've been trying really hard to sort of like get into her um, psyche of what she might like to eat. And my next book that I'm writing at the moment, it's going to be like my first book, but 10 years on, so with older children mm. in mind. So I'm going to have a, a, a revision chapter, like what to feed yes. kids who need to concentrate and revise. And Yeah, I know, because I've seen you creating lots of rosemary recipes. Yes. I didn't even know rosemary was meant to be good for yes. memory. So you're supposed so obviously to be... where I've been going wrong, Claire. Yeah, you're supposed to be lots of things with rosemary in them and, and turmeric and like ginger to sort of get brain cells going. So, you know, mm. I'm not a nutritionist, but I just, I do love a bit of stuff like that. It's quite cool, isn't it? That kind of like um, yeah. alchemy in the kitchen and that sort of uh, witchcraft, maybe. <laughs> like, but yes. I like it. Potions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, potions. So let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. Oh, you know, very different summer, winter, isn't it? So summer, I would say like cold, meze style things that just come together lovely chopped salads and flatbreads and hummus and tzatziki and all those kind of lovely things, some skewers for the people that eat meat, olives. You know, I love 
cooking when you don't actually cook and you just make this lovely assembly of things like watermelon feta salads you know and that's what's really lovely about summer cooking is if my daughter dot who doesn't like tomatoes you can just pick them out can't you (laughs) but incrementally all those flavor osmosis is going on you know if you separated everything out and every fed everyone separate foods they'd never even get a taste for it because they'd never know they were eating it so I say to dot just pick out the tomatoes but that's all incrementally going in so that's summer Mm. And winter, without a doubt, is jacket potatoes. We're big jacket potato fans in this house. It's a winning thing, isn't it? Pop them in the oven. Yeah. And then you've got so a vehicle good. for well, basically butter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get straight to the point here, Claire. <laughs> and then lots of other things. Like I make a nice sort of red onion and broccoli and sort of pumpkin seeds, sort of feta, sort of warm salad that would go with baked potatoes. Or, you know, Dot, of course, she's my iconoclast. She loves a Heinz baked bean. <laughs> I can't bear them, but, you know... Give her that very, very rarely. But you talk a lot about how to be a good cook, it's important to be a good reader. You need to read what all the great food writers have written and what they've said. And I thought that was so interesting because I've heard it said um, that to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. And to be a good cook, you have to be a good eater. But I, I love your idea. And I think you touched upon it earlier that that came from your first boss in the kitchen. But tell us a bit more about that. Oh, well, you know... And and they resonate today, those people, you know, Jane Grigson, Claudia Rodin, you know, uh, Valentina Harris, the River Cafe books, Jamie Oliver to some extent, Richard Olney. You know, I read his diaries when I first started cooking and they, they made me cry, but they also made me want to sort of like move to France and drive a sports car and, and have a headscarf and drink rosé all the time. Do you know what I mean? They're transportive. So um, mm. just great writers and not always cookbooks, you know, people who, Alan Davidson you know, uh, Harold McGee, these people in very different writing styles, but they have the knowledge and that's why they've written that book to sort of transfer Mm. it. So um, I was really lucky being given this reading list and it's still there today. And Jane Grigson, you know, she's incredible. Elizabeth David, all those people. And and modern day people, you know, Nigella, of course, Honey & Co, all these people, there's all this knowledge and it's that's what's exciting about... I mean, there's a lot of cookery books out there But um, I think you find your people in the cookery book world and you identify with what they say. And Rachel Roddy, you know, there's so many, aren't there? So I I feel like that knowledge and sharing of of recipes is... But also just, you know, the cooking at my daughter's school, at the school fair, there's always that stuff, you know, that tension of people who have the knowledge and people who want the knowledge and you need to work out how to, to get that. And that's... You know, if it's a cake sale in year five school fair, I'm there for it. <laughs> what are you making? What do I make? I always make a banana bread. Oh, do you? It's so easy to make, isn't it? There are mums who go big on the icing. I'm not one of them, you know? Like, I, I can't do Claire, I'd be quite intimidated if I was one of the other mums at your school. I don't know if I would go big on the icing, knowing that you were also making something. No, because the kids don't want my healthy spelt banana bread, do they? <laughs> the kids want the icing. They want those mad icing cupcakes with loads of sweets on them. The mums have my healthy spell. Okay, yeah. (laughs) You've said that you think the word foodie has really negative connotations here in the UK and that it's almost as though we fetishise food too much and we need to be a bit more practical about it. I think I totally agree with you, but just tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that exactly. Well, that notion that it's some sort of elite, you know, thing Mm. that people who have got loads of time or money who can be be interested Mm. in food 
I mean, that's not the case, is it, really? As we all know, going back to my daughter's school, there are people of all walks of life cooking great food, and that's the luxury. It's not about money or time. It's about knowledge, isn't it, and, and what you know about food and cooking. So foodie has some sort of rarefied elite pastime, and it shouldn't be that. And going back to what I said a, a few minutes ago, it, it's just food as well. We all need to eat, and, you know, sometimes it, you just crack on and eat the food and then other times you've got yeah other times you do have like a birthday or a special celebration in mind and you can afford more money to that dish or more time some of the best dishes in the world are made with the cheapest ingredients but you need Mm. the time to eat flavor and make them taste incredible so foodie seems to me some sort of you just go and buy all these sort of expensive Mm rarefied ingredients and it needn't be so yeah you're right that also reminds me of something I was thinking about you when I was preparing for this I think your huge success on social media and I hope you don't mind me saying this but it makes me so happy because I think there is a disconnect sometimes between the people doing the best food writing and then the people doing the best on social media in terms of their followings Mm. and to see you do well at both those things is really exciting to see. Thank you. Um, well, I think I, I've always tried to be really authentic. I know that's a word that lots of people use these days, but I, I am a chef and I did get that knowledge of how to cook like that. And then I had babies and then I, I did also do a degree in journalism and writing. And so I, I feel like this kind of coming up to this kind of apex of it, it's all coming together. I always said I would mm-hmm. like to write, but I also always said I, I would like to know the knowledge before I started writing about it. So hopefully that's what's put me in good stead, is that, that there's an authenticity. And then also I also think really <laughs> key in this world is to not be full of bullshit and to be yourself. And, uh, you know, no makeup, no lighting. I'm just phoning. I just feel everything on a phone. I don't have someone helping me to do all that. I just do it myself. I just, you know, people. someone said to me, what do you do with all the food? I was like, well, we eat it. That's what, like, yeah. that's the whole point. <laughs> I'm just cooking. I just film what we eat and I make it. It's either packed lunch stuff or dinner or, you know, a lunch or there's no dishes that aren't made that go in the bin. That is what we eat. And that, I hope, comes mm. through. Oh, yeah, it completely comes through. And that's the essence of exactly what you're about. Mm. We're on to the sixth desert island dish. Claire, what is your go-to dinner party dish? Well, if it involves my children, um, it would definitely be Mexican. We have a tradition when it's your birthday, you get to choose what the meal is and they all choose Mexican. So we've got a little, um, we're really lucky in Bristol, we've got a Mexican shop so we can get all the lovely masajarina flour and all the chilies and they're amazing. And we've got one of those little stamper, you know, those sort of tortilla stamp press things. Ooh, Yeah. Since Doc could barely walk, I think, she's been able to stamp a tortilla out. So we've always done that. And, you know, Dot will stamp them out. Ivy can cook them. Grace is really good at, like, the other stuff that we... So I think as a communal cooking activity at home for a special occasion, it would be definitely tacos. And we'd make, like, a burnt salsa and guacamole. Dot loves avocados. So that, without doubt, would be that. And then for, like, a sort of dinner where grown-ups come and uh, not so much centred around the children, it always depends on what I've seen in the vegetable shop. You know, we live in, in Bristol and we've got loads of veg and fruit shops around us, but whatever's looking lovely. We've got a really lovely um, greengrocer called Hugo's Greengrocers and he lo- brings in lovely stuff from Italy and France and lovely local homegrown stuff. So whatever it is, I really love cooking like that, just not 
going to the shops with the recipe in mind, but going to the shops and seeing what's best and then deciding what to cook. Mm, the best way of cooking. Do you normally serve puddings? I hate making puddings. Hate it. Mm. So my first... Clara, I, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so when I went to London to cook after I left Bristol, I lied and got a job as a pastry chef and basically worked in this restaurant and said I was really good at pastry. And then I did about 10 days and I had to make all these little petit fours and I had to do these mm. really elaborate lemon tarts and... Um, Oh, it was a nightmare, and I, my tart cases kept leaking. My little petty four things didn't puff up enough, or whatever it was, like shoe pastry. And then this chap came across, and he said, um, "You're not really a pastry chef, are you?" And I was like, "Um, no." And so he said, "Do you want to swap? I'll do pastry, and you can do my hot section. That's the grill." Oh. And I was like, "Yeah, I really want to do that. Thank you for saving my bacon." And that is Matt, and I married him. <laughs> No way. Oh, my God, Claire. That's the most romantic story I've ever heard. Did he want to be the pastry chef or he was just trying to help you? There might have been some mutual appreciation of each other. (laughs) Claire. Oh, my goodness. Um, So I really wanted to work there because it was like the holy grail in restaurants. You got every other weekend off and you got these set days off so you could like have a sort of normal life, you know. So we worked there together in the Chelsea Arts Club and, um, and then... We got together and went travelling. Yeah. I don't know what the moral of that story is. It's good to lie. <laughs> lie to get what you want in life. <laughs> it's the only way. <laughs> no, Claire, that is such a lovely story. Yeah, and that was 21 years ago. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Uh, I would like Jane Grigson's Fruit and Vegetable Books. Because Ooh, any yes. book I ever set about writing that's my reference point and you know if I want to write about tomatoes or aubergines or strawberries it's timeless she has an, a unique quality as a food writer that it's evergreen her book and that is an amazing thing to have to be evergreen in food writing because it's so fast and furious but I would love for some of my books to be evergreen as you were saying that I was just thinking the ones that aren't evergreen are sort of trend based but if that's never the ethos behind what you do, it is going to be mm. evergreen. And, and that's why Jane's writing is is the way that it is, because it only ever came from, and it sounds corny, but if it comes from like mm. your heart and soul and it's not focused on what other people are doing in that moment in time, mm. I think those are the ones that stand the test of time. I would have her, definitely. <laughs> Claire, we're on to the final seventh Desert Island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island? Oh my goodness, can I have wine with it? Yes, of course. And you are you are also allowed several courses. So I probably wouldn't have some big dinner. Do you know what I mean? I'd probably be quite anxious, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'd probably just have a little bit of grazing going on. You know, maybe some really good bread and some really good oils and some cheeses and olives. And, you know, I'd do that sort of sharing stuff, hopefully have some conversation going, not be by myself in a cell. No, 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 no cell. (laughs) And I'd have some really lovely wine. And I think I'd have that really. Like, it'd have to have really good bread and and good olive oil because that is the essence of of good food, isn't it? Like, I wouldn't have some big dinner or supper. I would have something grazing to give me time to sort of think about my life on the island. Mm. I hate the idea of you thinking that you're in a cell. Okay, no. Not a last supper moment. (laughs) 
you haven't done anything wrong. You're just going to the island. Yeah. So maybe some like, you know, and a really good salad. I'd really, really like some green vegetables. I think green vegetables, that might be the first time they've really been singled out as the uh, the final dish, Claire. That's what I crave. When, I, when I've mm. been like at a festival or camping or gone somewhere else that isn't where I get to cook, you know, on holiday even, you haven't got your usual cooking equipment and stuff that's what I want to eat most is is plain green vegetables dressed with good olive oil and seasoned well with salt Mm. well then that is what you shall have Mm. Claire that is what you (laughs) shall have Claire those were your desert island dishes thank you so much thank you so there we have it another delicious day of desert island dishes don't forget that you can rate review and subscribe to the podcast on itunes or wherever you listen really i think it really does make a difference i think it boosts the show in the charts and that means that other people can find it and that means that i can keep bringing it to you each week If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you very much again to Lloyds Bank and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening.